0: Longtime time listeners of this podcast know how George Washington, in his role as the first president of the United States, established many precedents that have carried on from one presidency to the next, up to the present day. For this episode, I'm joined by a special guest to examine arguably the most impactful institution in the executive branch that Washington established not by law, but by practice during his presidency. Lindsay Cherensky is a historian at the White House Historical Association. She received her B.A. in History and Political Science from the George Washington University, completed her master's and Ph.D. from the University of California, Davis, and was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship at the Center for Presidential History at Southern Methodist University. Her writing has been featured in Law and History Review, The Journal of the Early Republic, Presidential Studies Quarterly, Time, and The Washington Post. She is an expert in the cabinet, presidential history, political culture, and U.S. government institutions. Lindsay's first book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, was just published by the Belknap Press of Harvard University Press and is a fascinating read. Lindsay and I had a great conversation that brought back to mind and expanded upon various points that we covered in our journey through the Washington Presidency. Without further ado, let's turn to my discussion with Lindsay. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us. Before we got started, I actually wanted to share that um, I was uh, in the audience of a panel at Shear in 2017 that you participated in, and you were talking about Jefferson's Cabinet. And I remember you mentioning at the time that you were working on this book, which became The Cabinet. And so it's a great honor to finally have had a chance to read it and to have an opportunity to talk to you about it. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Wow, that was a long time ago um, and feels like a million worlds ago. But yes, it is. It, well, it it does a good job of highlighting how long scholarship actually takes.
0: Absolutely. And it's it's an amazing work. And um, I've actually listened to a few other interviews that you were that you participated in in preparation for this and to hear you know, how it evolved from your dissertation into this actual work. And it sounds like you were really intentional in trying to make sure that this was approachable for a a more general audience. And so I I know, and and I think you mentioned that you had um, rewritten it three times in the process.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I always say I don't advise doing that if you can help it. But like you said, I had a really clear vision of what I wanted it to be. And I really wanted I felt like I owed the story of the cabinet because it really hadn't been told. I owed it to myself and to the story to get it out there to as many people as possible. And so I felt like the writing really needed to tell a story and to be a narrative. And that just took me a little while to figure out how to do because it was my first time doing it.
0: Well, and just speaking for myself, and I'm sure many others agree, we thank you for taking that time and and really crafting this into a great work. To so kind of start and and thinking of this idea of the cabinet, because one of the things you talked about were kind of the influences that that helped Washington to get to this idea of the cabinet. And you mentioned um, both his experience in the Continental Army and and some of the how he approached his his staff in the army. But um, you also brought up the idea of the British cabinet. And so I was wondering if you would mind speaking to how that British cabinet format influenced the creation of the American cabinet, both in using it as a model of what the cabinet should be and what it cautioned Washington and his successors against.
1: Yeah. So I sort of think of the British cabinet as almost like an anti-origin so, the British cabinet evolved from the Privy Council, and the Privy, Privy Council was um, basically too big to be an efficient advisory body for the king. And so, he started pulling off some of his favorite advisors into this other group, which eventually became known as the cabinet. And that was really what the Americans, um, what, what their concept of a cabinet was going into the revolution. And this was a body they really viewed with suspicion because They tended to meet privately. There was very little record of what was happening, of who was saying what, of who was you know, kind of in charge, of who was taking responsibility. And they really blamed that group for instigating a lot of the conflict that led to the revolution. And so that was something that they were deeply suspicious of. And when the Constitutional Convention occurred and the delegates were trying to craft a new government, they were very intentional about trying to Um, make sure there wasn't a body like that that was built into the system. So they did not want um, a private advisory body that would be a cabal or like filled with the president's cronies and have a lot of corruption. They wanted there to be transparency and responsibility at the highest levels of government. And so they rejected proposals for councils that actually looked almost identical to the one that actually evolved um, once Washington was in office. And Washington and the secretaries were very aware of these expectations. Washington was, of course, the president of the Constitutional Convention. He was there every day. He attended every session. He drank tea and socialized and went to the theater and listened to music and had dinner with the delegates every day after the sessions. So he had a very clear sense of what was expected of them. And so one of my like greatest... Frustrations with the evidence is that they never actually wrote down that they were trying to avoid comparisons to the British cabinet. I wish that they had. <laughs> but it, you can kind of tell through their actions that they're trying to avoid comparisons by demonstrating their virtue, by demonstrating their republicanism. And this is little r republicanism by trying to demonstrate their responsibility in office and that the president is in charge and they're not trying to steal extra authority all these little things that they're really trying to cultivate an image. And so in in that way, you can kind of tell by reading their actions and the way that they dress and the way that they talk, that they were always had in the back of their minds, this idea of the British cabinet that they wanted to avoid.
0: And I like that. um, And thank you for bringing up the uh, constitutional convention and kind of the, the various ideas that they had, but then ultimately rejected about the cabinet system and That kind of gets to one of the points that you made in the book, even after the Constitutional Convention and and the government under the Constitution starts, Washington actually experimented with various types of advisory bodies other than what we now know of as the cabinet model. Would you mind taking a moment to talk about those alternatives that he tried, but that he ultimately rejected?
1: Yeah, that's right. So Washington was very attentive to really trying to stick to the letter of the law in the Constitution when he first came into office. And so there were two options that were available to him that were detailed out in Article 2, Section 2. The first is that they really expected the Senate to serve as a council of foreign affairs. And that seems really crazy to us in the 21st century because the Senate is 100 people and, you know, right now kind of either serves either as a veto or a rubber stamp on treaties and appointments. But back then, the Senate was only 24 people when it first gathered because Rhode Island hadn't yet ratified the Constitution. So 24 is not an impossibly huge number, and it was in theory possible that they could give advice. And they were indirectly elected by the state, so they were considered to be sort of safe advisors because they could be recalled if they basically gave really bad advice. So Washington initially did try and meet with the Senate for advice on a treaty and a foreign policy issue, and it went very badly. And the Senate wanted to refer the issue to a committee, just like a legislative body usually would. And Washington was really frustrated because he felt like that was not how diplomacy worked. He needed immediate answers and immediate guidance. So after that one visit, he never went back. So that was sort of a, a rough start to the Constitution and to the Senate and the president's relationship. The other option was written correspondence that the president could exchange with the department secretaries about issues pertaining to matters in their department. And Washington initially really did this with the secretaries. He would ask them for advice or you know exchange letters about something that came across their desk. But written correspondence, especially back then, took a really long time because you were dealing with parchment and quill, and it had to dry, and then you had to have it delivered, and then you had to wait for the response, and these were really complex issues that they were dealing with. So that process of constantly writing back and forth with follow-up questions or more details just really wasn't um, efficient enough. And so Washington started leaning towards individual consultations. He also explored a couple of different options based on some other models that they were probably familiar with based either on Great Britain or sort of just their general understanding of history. So the first was sort of like an unofficial prime minister situation. James Madison was very close to George Washington. He had helped him with a number of issues as they were leading into the presidency. He had been instrumental in getting Washington to attend the Constitutional Convention And so when he was in the House of Representatives, he sort of served as this unofficial prime minister, helping Washington with his first address to Congress, helping Congress write the response, helping Washington write the response to Congress's response, and making sure that if an issue came before Congress, that Washington's sort of ideas were subtly included under the table. And so that worked for the first year or so, but then Madison started to split with the administration on some financial issues, especially legislation that Hamilton had brought forth. And as their relationship started to sour a little bit, Washington no longer really turned to Madison for advice as frequently. And then the last option was actually the Supreme Court. And John Jay was the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he and Washington were very close, and Washington frequently asked him for advice on foreign policy or legal issues or even like social etiquette questions about how the president should comport himself. And Jay was more than happy to provide that sort of advice. But in 1793, when there was a real question of neutrality and how the United States should go about enforcing neutrality, which is a legal question... Washington asked the Supreme Court for their sort of collective guidance. And the justices basically turned down that request and they said it would be inappropriate until they were reviewing a piece of legislation. So that was the last option that Washington sort of considered and was rejected by the Supreme Court.
0: And that actually brings up one of the individuals that I really wanted to talk to you about, because one of the points that you make in your book is that there are, you know, it seems like when folks write of Washington's cabinet and Washington's administration, there tends to be so much focus on Hamilton and Jefferson. But you also have these other figures that modern day students of history may not be quite as familiar with, but that were key members either officially or unofficially of the the cabinet. And so you had mentioned uh, John Jay. Could you speak a little more to kind of his role in Washington's presidency?
1: Yeah. So John Jay was um, had served as the Secretary of Foreign Affairs for the Confederation Congress. And there's some debate about whether or not Washington asked him to stay on as that position because Washington really respected his advice and respected his expertise. But um, whether it was sort of Jay's preference or an unspoken preference, Jay ended up being appointed the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. But they got along well, they sort of thought about things the same way, they both had respect for each other's sort of very intense moral compass. And so from the very beginning, Washington was asking Jay for advice, especially because Thomas Jefferson, who ended up being the Secretary of State, didn't actually take office until early in 1790. So Washington had about three quarters of a year in office where he really leaned on Jay to continue to provide guidance in that area as well as things like, you know, how he should interact with citizens on the street and whether or not he could host parties or or attend gatherings or go to the theater, things like that where he just kind of wanted people's opinions that he respected. And so, Jay continued to provide sort of this unofficial guidance throughout Washington's presidency, including to the other secretaries and the members of the cabinet when they would, you know, have a question, sometimes they would take it to Jay either before they talked to Washington or they would talk to Washington and then they would take it to Jay to see what he had to say and get his perspective.
0: And another individual that you mentioned that Washington had a longstanding relationship, you know, even even prior to his becoming president and that played a critical role in his presidency was Henry Knox. Would you mind speaking a little to him? Um, I know uh, in the example that you were talking about when... Um, Washington tried to consult with the Senate uh, in person, Knox was the one that was kind of by his side for that painful experience for the president. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think Knox and Randolph are the two sort of underappreciated figures in the 1790s. Um, Maybe Jay too, but Knox and Washington first met in 1775 when Washington traveled up to Boston to take over the Continental Army. And they sort of immediately hit it off. Washington immediately trusted Knox. It didn't hurt that he led the famous mission to Fort Ticonderoga to bring back the cannons for the siege of Boston, and so sort of immediately had this military success and acclaim. And he went on to serve as the Major General of Artillery. He was with Washington every step of the way during the war. At the end of the war, Washington rewarded him by giving him the command of West Point. Um, And then Knox went on to serve as the Secretary of War for the Confederation Congress. And during that time, during his tenure in that position, he oversaw relationships with Native American nations, he tried to reform the militia, he oversaw sort of domestic threats to the nation, including Shays' Rebellion. And so he had unbelievable firsthand experience on top of this already great relationship with Washington. And so he was kind of a no-brainer to stay on in the Secretary of War position. And especially in the early years of the administration was absolutely essential because Washington was very preoccupied with trying to get relationships with Native Americans on a peaceful footing. And so that fell under the purview of the Secretary of War. So Knox and Washington were working hand in hand. And we can see how important Knox was to Washington during the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794, when Knox actually leaves because he has to go back to Maine to sort of deal with his crumbling personal finances. And Washington is really upset that he left. And when he doesn't come back quickly is very distraught that he's not there and misses his advice and wants his counsel. And so that's not something that Washington reveals all that often. He's not particularly, you know, loquacious about missing someone, but he does say that to Knox. And so that indicates to me that he was a very, very important part of the cabinet. And he frequently, I think gets overlooked because he so often agreed with Hamilton and so people like Jefferson sort of discounted him as just, you know, going along with Hamilton's whims. But actually, Knox had this incredible military career and had – if Hamilton you know, came to believe that a strong military and a strong national government was important because of his military experience, then Knox had way more reason to believe those things as well. And so he really came to his opinions through his own life experiences.
0: Absolutely. And when I was working on the Washington series for the podcast, you know, Knox was definitely one of those figures that, you know, you read in so many sources. It, it is basically the the Hamilton or, or the um, Jefferson narrative that he was just kind of Hamilton's lackey. But whenever you start digging in a little more, you see, no, he really did have his own opinions. And like you said, he came to him of his own volition. It wasn't just because Hamilton said so.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and also I think one thing, I mean, it's really hard to quantify this because this is sort of speculation on my part, but Knox was a very warm person by all accounts. And some of the people that Washington surrounded himself, like Hamilton and Jefferson, weren't particularly warm towards Washington. It was much more of like a business relationship. And so I think that that personal friendship, that warmth was probably really
0: essential. Absolutely, And I think one of the things that you really speak to is how that. The various roles that the cabinet played, you know, not just in terms of managing the departments, but in making policy, but then also in the social aspect of, of surrounding people and, and thinking of the cabinet as kind of a, a form of family.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They were, I mean, Washington referred to them as his official family, and they certainly were. They provided support. They were there during social events. He invited them to the theater and to go out riding with him and to go to see gardens. And so he wanted them around and he selected them for a reason.
0: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts. Well, and I think one point that you get to about another role that the cabinet played was in this gauging of public opinion. You mention in the book the methods that politicians in the early republic used to gauge public opinion. And you said that, quote, Washington experienced a more complicated relationship with public opinion than many other public officials. So I was wondering if you would mind talking about some of the methods that Washington and his cabinet members and other politicians of the time used to get a sense of public opinion. And what made these methods effective for the Washington presidency and in the early republic in general?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So public opinion was pretty hard to gauge back then because we didn't have polling and there wasn't, you know, cable news and, and there wasn't online options and there certainly wasn't Twitter. But there were a couple of different methods that uh, politicians or people sort of in the public eye could use. So the first was their own personal networks through which they would send letters and exchange correspondence and other sort of newspaper clippings. And letter writing back then was not always as secret as we would think of private correspondence today often you would, if you had your friend's blessing, you would take their letter and you would show it to other people. You would allow other people to read it. Maybe they would write like a note on the outside of it and then forward it along. And so these networks were really intended to channel information both down to sort of your local communities, but then also from your local communities back to the seat of government. Um, And they were very intentional. And so all of the first members of the cabinet, including Washington, kind of cultivated their own networks through their Uh, official communications and their official connections, but then also through their family and friends. So that was probably the most important way. But then there were also a series of publications which had sort of varying degrees of seriousness. And one of the first people I think to write about this super effectively was Joanne Freeman. And she showed how there were these different types of publications, starting with like the least serious to sort of just the anonymous piece in a local newspaper. And people understood that if you didn't put your name to it, it wasn't really all that important. And maybe if you did a broadside with your name on it, but it's sort of like, you know, a big piece of paper that was tacked to a tree, maybe that was a little bit more important, but it was intended to be sort of a quick transitory message. And it wasn't going to last a whole that all that long. A more serious publication like a bound pamphlet was was definitely taken seriously, but was expected to only reach sort of the elite or the rich, the people that could actually pay for that sort of pamphlet. And then the most broadly accessible and the most serious was a signed letter in the newspaper. So if you put your name to it and you staked your reputation on it, it was a very serious uh, message indeed. And so these are basically different ways that elites could communicate with the public, but then also receive communications back by looking at what was being said and what sort of op-eds were being written and What sort of messages were being conveyed in these various types of publications? And newspapers at the time in the 1790s, they were really proliferating. And so not only were there more of them, but they were being printed more frequently. And they would often take messages from newspapers in other locations and reprint them. And so in that way, we can track news from, you know, like South Carolina all the way up to Boston to see how fast it was expanding and, you know, what sort of messages were. We're traveling, and at what rate?
0: Absolutely, and thank you f- so much for bringing that up because that was one of the points that was really fascinating to me um, when when you do when you went through kind of the breakdown of the various types of sources and what that can tell us about how the information was perceived and how serious or not it was taken by individuals of the time.
1: Well, and I should also say, just for clarification, when elites were concerned about public opinion, they were primarily concerned about what white men thought. So it is an important distinction that sometimes women did write in newspapers anonymously um, or even published books like Mercy Otis Warren published books. But by and large, white men were the audience that they were targeting.
0: Absolutely. And I, I think that's one point that you really help the reader to understand in in the cabinet is... The audience and the sources that are existing are are the lack of sources that we have that, that sometimes shape or reshape or misconstrue kind of how we perceive of the time period and and what was going on. And, and I think you do make that point very clear about why we why there is so much of a focus on Hamilton and Jefferson, because we've got this this these volumes of letters to and from them that that we're drawing from. And so their voices seem to grow ever larger just because we've got more sources and more readily available sources. But it's important to note that there were other figures, you know, both in official circles, but then in, in the larger context of the United States that, whose voices we may not be hearing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, one of the great gifts about their very copious <laughs> documents and you know letters that they preserved is that we can actually get at a lot of different topics through their letters so i mean you know of course like incredible scholars like an- Annette Gordon Reed have brought to life the Hemings family through the Jefferson letters and so that is a great opportunity That is, you know, when people don't necessarily leave a written record themselves, because either they were illiterate or, you know, history did not prioritize what they were saying, we can still sometimes get at their lives through people like Jefferson and Hamilton. But then we also risk allowing them to dictate, you know, what history remembers. So as you noted, Knox tends to get a bad rap because of how Jefferson described him. And in some ways, I think that that's true for Randolph as well. And it's because, you know, Jefferson kind of had the last word on the subject.
0: And Speaking of Randolph, uh, he was one of the figures that I wanted to ask if you would mind expanding on a little bit, because whenever I was covering the Washington presidency for the podcast, like you said, he does get this bad rep and is sometimes undervalued in studies of Washington's presidency, but Again, like with Knox, whenever you start digging down, you see just how critical of a role he played and and how close, especially once he became the second secretary of state, the critical role that he played in the cabinet.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. He was essential and very central so I think he gets a bad rap for two reasons. The first is that Jefferson sometimes wrote that decisions in the cabinet would be decided two and a half to one and a half, alluding to Jefferson, or excuse me, alluding to Randolph's sort of wishy-washiness, which I think is, it's, it's hilarious line, and it's really very funny. But um, I think Randolph really saw himself as a nonpartisan, unbiased figure, and so he really tried to approach every decision from that perspective, and sometimes that meant he sided with Knox and Hamilton, and sometimes that meant he sided with Jefferson, and Jefferson found that infuriating because he really always expected to have Randolph's support. The second reason is that he sort of resigned in very dire, dark circumstances, and that has led a lot of people to sort of discredit him. In 1795, there were a series of letters that the French minister had written back home to the French government and through a series of strange machinations, a British ship acquired them and gave them to the British minister and the British minister gave them to Timothy Pickering and Oliver Wolcott. And I think that they were sort of driven by partisan impulses because Randolph was a little bit more Republican leaning and had such significant sway with Washington in a way that they did not. I think they were sort of out to get him. And so they translated these letters in very dubious French and basically concluded that he had offered to sell state secrets to the French for a bribe. And I should be very clear that I don't actually believe that that is what happened. I think he said in 1794, when referring to the Whiskey Rebellion, that with for a few thousand dollars, the French could sway the course of events, referring to if the French invested in the rebels in Western Pennsylvania. So, unfortunately, Washington didn't have very good French either, and really depended on Pickering and Wolcott's translation. And It's a really sad moment because the way that he confronts Randolph really offended Randolph because they had been close friends for so long. Um, Randolph had served as Washington's aide-de-camp early in the revolution. And then throughout his entire tenure as the attorney general of Virginia and the governor of Virginia had served as Washington's private lawyer. So they were very close. And as you said, once he was secretary of state, He was really Washington's preferred advisor. He had one-on-ones with Washington when the other secretaries were excluded. He was trusted with far more information. And he had a really brilliant legal mind. So the other secretaries also consulted him, especially on legal issues. Um, So he felt very um, hurt when Washington kind of kept these allegations from him and then confronted him in front of the other secretaries, didn't really treat him with honor. And so it was just a very sad end to the relationship. And I think it's one of those moments where, from a presidential perspective, you kind of understand why Washington acted the way he did to protect his administration from any hint of scandal. But at the same time, from a personal perspective, he kind of seems like a jerk. And I think that's important to to show. And so Randolph ends up resigning and going back to Virginia. And he serves as an attorney for the rest of his life, but he's kind of as a result forgotten in the history books.
0: And I really appreciated that uh, when you were writing about his resignation, one of the things that, that you noted was that this should be understood within the context of the 1790s honor culture. And, you know, that was one thing that, that really struck me as I was going through the Washington presidency is this idea of, of honor and place and the importance of, of maintaining a good name. And I, I think that is very important to keep in mind is to want to understanding why Randolph reacted like he did.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's hard to overemphasize how important a man's reputation was at the time. It was his political and social currency. It was the thing that would permit you to have business deals and credit and um, transactions. It allowed you entry into higher social circles. And so without that reputation, you really had nothing. And Randolph, while he came from a wealthy family, he actually wasn't that wealthy himself. And so he really worried about Any you know hint of scandal on his reputation, what that might mean, and so he ended up kind of acting a little bit rashly and publishing his correspondence with Washington in a way to try and defend against you know rumors and insinuations, and there was nothing that would break a bond with Washington faster than
0: publishing correspondence. Absolutely, and and it's interesting because that that becomes kind of a. a a theme that runs through various points of the Washington presidency. For example, during your examination of the Genet affair, uh, you mentioned how Hamilton had urged Washington to put Genet's correspondence before Congress as it would damage Jefferson and his supporters politically. And then you've got this instance of you know, yet again, the revelation of diplomatic correspondence that's used kind of for political gain against Randolph. And I was thinking, you know, as I was reading this, the XYZ affair, you know, later on in the Adams presidency came to mind. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you, you might speak to what this might tell us about the political power of diplomatic correspondence in the early republic.
1: That's a great question. Um, In some ways, I think it's really it is a fun thing to see because it shows that in some ways, politics really hasn't changed that much at all, because we still have scandals surrounding, you know, leaked correspondence. And so it's always helpful to remember that while a lot of things have changed, some things very much remain the same. But I think that what these episodes reveal to us is that the 1790s were a moment were were a decade that were filled with moments of stress and anxiety the country was constantly on the brink of war with France or Great Britain or both Or Spain. And so diplomacy and relationships with France and Great Britain were at the center of pretty much everything that was happening, including the formation of the first political parties, because they the country was so brand new. And it's easy to think, you know, from the 21st century perspective that, of course, it was going to work out because it did. And we've seen the last several hundred years. But that was really not their sense. And they were deeply afraid that the country was going to fail. And they were deeply afraid that it was going to break up into sections and they were going to be consumed by various different European empires. And so this preoccupation with what was going on with France and Great Britain and the correspondence and whether or not people were acting in good faith or whether they were acting as foreign agents, it was kind of a constant, all-consuming affair in, in the way that I think perhaps is best articulated if we look at the Cold War when, when foreign policy and diplomacy, especially with one actor, was such a central part of American culture. I think that that's probably the best comparison I can think of.
0: And I think that context is important to understanding the Washington presidency and and Washington himself. And I think that also says something about why he kind of turned to this cabinet system, you know, because he was scared of failure. And and you make that point that that his reputation was on the line. If all of this failed, he would be seen as the one who, who failed the nation.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he felt such a tremendous burden to try and see the nation through at least the first couple of years, if not longer, and was acutely aware that every single action he took could lead to failure or would govern who came after him. And so was just really constantly fretting about each action and what it would lead to and what it would leave for the nation when he was gone. And so you're right. I think that's why the cabinet became so important to him is, you know, he didn't, he, for all of his experience and all of his knowledge, He had only left the country once, and it was when he was a teenager, and he went to Barbados. So he didn't have experience at Versailles or the Court of St. James, and he needed somebody who understood how diplomatic circles worked. And so that's why the Secretary of State was such an important position is because it provided that sort of guidance to him and that sort of advice that he needed and these huge moments, he basically concluded that one person's advice was not sufficient. He needed multiple perspectives. So he understood sort of how to balance between different extremes and different opinions in order to try and find sort of the best middle ground approach.
0: Absolutely. And and conversely, you know, not just in foreign affairs, but also in domestic affairs. And, you know, one of the points that you really emphasize and talk about in good detail is the Whiskey Rebellion. And so I was pointing to see if you could speak to um, the person who was attorney general at that time and who was heavily involved, uh, William Bradford, because Bradford, it, when I was going through the Washington presidency, I started to get interested in him and tried to find more resources. And they're just really aren't that many about him. And, and so whenever I saw that you emphasized him as kind of one of these key players that, that people don't really know that much about from the cabinet, I wanted to make a point of asking you about him.
1: Yeah, he is, he is a completely forgotten figure. And partly that's because, unfortunately, he gets sick and he dies um, during Washington's presidency. But after Thomas Jefferson retired as Secretary of State, then Edmund Randolph was appointed. Um, He basically leapfrogged from Attorney General to the State Department. And so Washington appointed William Bradford for a number of reasons. Um, First and foremost, he had been an officer in the military. He had served with Washington at Valley Forge. He had been at the Battles of Trenton and Princeton. So that went a long way in Washington's book because it meant that you had sort of a deep conviction of nationalism and the importance of the military. He also was from Pennsylvania, so it provided good regional diversity to the cabinet, which was always really critical for Washington to have some balance in that way. And he had been an early supporter of the Constitution. He had served in the state government. And so he had the credentials that were really important. But he takes on sort of this additional significance in 1794 with the outbreak of the Whiskey Rebellion, because on one hand, Knox and Hamilton are sort of advocating for immediate military action. And on the other, Randolph is saying, like, if, you know, absolutely, we'll do military action if we have to, but let's try a peaceful solution first. And Bradford comes up with this middle solution, which is send out a peace commission, but not because you expect that it's going to work. Because it's important for public opinion to see that you have tried all peaceful options first. And so as to not waste any time, be gathering the militia and getting your military response ready to go, such that when the Peace Commission fails, you can send out troops. And that really appealed to Washington for a number of reasons. He was very attentive to public opinion, as we've discussed. He didn't want to get out ahead of sentiment against the rebels. He, But he also liked efficiency. And so he didn't want to have to sit around and wait for the militia to be called up once he determined that he needed them. And then Bradford takes on the sort of additional role in that he goes out to Western Pennsylvania as one of the peace commissioners. And Washington selects a couple of Pennsylvanians, including Pennsylvanians from the Western region to make sure that they are represented. But he knows that they are all either close personal friends of his, or they are very devoted federalists and devoted to the national government. So he's not worried about them, you know, throwing him under the bus. But Bradford leads the Peace Commission. He's from Pennsylvania, so he can be sort of a part of this this mission. And he writes letters back, basically letting them know the chances of things working out and alerting them to the very high rate of the leaders of this rebellion, refusing to cooperate with a peaceful solution. And so that indicates to Washington and the other secretaries that military action is going to be necessary. So he takes on sort of this really oversized role in 1794 that we don't usually think of either the attorney general or Bradford, because most people don't know who he is.
0: And and it's interesting how some of these figures really do get lost until you start to really examine these periods in the Washington presidency, and and they really come to light. And I think one of the points that that you make as the, the cabinet's evolving and cabinet members are leaving and Washington's struggling to find new cabinet members in the second term, um, you had mentioned in the section on Randolph's res- resignation, you had written that, quote, Uh, Washington acted as though yet another trusted advisor had betrayed or abandoned him. And you really do get the sense whenever you're reading some of Washington's writings at the time and his exasperations at trying to pull together another cabinet, because he was really, the cabinet members had really worked hard on him to put his name forward again in 1792. And then all of a sudden, all of them are gone. And he's left kind of holding the bag. And so I was wondering... um, how much do you feel that Washington's desire to retire might have influenced his decisions or his approach to the cabinet in the second term?
1: Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, So first, yeah, I think he was very frustrated by the fact that they all insist that he stay in office and then they go and they leave. And the positions were certainly honorable at the time, but they were not particularly well compensated. And it meant that you were away from your family for months at a time. you were away from your businesses. So you probably took an economic hit. And travel was incredibly uncomfortable and took a long time. It was expensive. And so just it was not a very desirable position. And so he did have a lot of and it was kind of thankless, too, because you were always getting criticized. So he did have a lot of trouble getting people into office. And I sometimes affectionately refer to the replacements as the B team because he just clearly did not want to engage with them in the same way. And
0: I, I actually had two episodes the the first one was talking about the original cabinet and I called the episode the dream team. <laughs> and then talking about the the difficulties, that was the not so dream team.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and we can see how much he doesn't trust them in seventeen ninety five when the Jay Treaty is received from when he receives the JT treaty from London, and he shares it with Randolph, and they keep it a secret for like three months, and they don't share it with the other secretaries. And that would have never happened when Hamilton and Jefferson were in office. There's just no way. And so you can see that he super trusts Randolph and he super doesn't trust the other guys. So, I mean, I think partly it was that he trusted his own decision making more. Partly he trusted his ability to sort of process issues. And they had already kind of gone through precedent setting for a lot of the day to day activities of governing. He did still convene cabinet meetings when there was a really big moment. So when he decides to use or or to assert executive privilege for the first time, Washington convened a cabinet meeting. But I do think probably part of it was at least that he was tired and he wanted to go home. And maybe there was, you know, less of an interest in sitting through cabinet meetings. But also by the last couple of years, um, especially once Randolph resigns, the cabinet is much more uniform in its partisan ideology. And so he doesn't have the same benefit of hearing Jefferson and Hamilton sort of bicker over issues because they pretty much all agree at this point. And so I think for a lot of reasons, he just felt like it wasn't as helpful or as useful or you know, whatever reason it was because he didn't write it down. So we're kind of speculating based on the evidence available. He just didn't really want as much to do with it.
0: Absolutely. And one of the things that I was wondering, um, because you mentioned that the group of advisors started to be referred to in some of the correspondence as the cabinet around like 1793, 1794. And so I was wondering if that may have played a role that there was kind of starting to have this linkage to the, the British cabinet system and maybe it was seen as, as being something that wasn't as as desirable to be be in place and and also around that time you you start to have more of the you, you know you've got benjamin franklin bosch and mm-hmm. and in print media, more attacks against Washington and this increase in factionalism and I was wondering if that may may have played a role in in his difficulties in finding new cabinet members
1: well, I think it definitely um so the the usage of the word cabinet Madison is using it as early as seventeen ninety two and um, it's, you know, sort of all over the press in 1793. And certainly the heightened partisan tensions contributed to Washington's desire to leave office and perhaps to people's desire to avoid those sorts of offices. I absolutely think that's true. What's really interesting is that Washington refuses to use the word cabinet in his own writing until he retired. And he very clearly knew that that's what other people were calling it because the second he retired, he referred to John John Adams cabinet as John Adams cabinet, but he never refers to his own in that way. And so I don't know if that's a desire to try and, you know, stay away from the conflict to stay away from any sort of British comparison, but certainly that that partisan tension 100% contributed to him wanting to leave office. There, I don't. I didn't find any evidence that that's why people s- turned him down. But my guess is that probably was in the back of their mind.
0: Absolutely, and especially thinking of it again in that that context of the 1790s honor culture, you know, you yeah. you you didn't want to have this bad association, and and especially at this time where it it wasn't seen as as becoming to really seek office.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you were not supposed to want to be in office, you were not supposed to campaign for office, you were not supposed to seek it out, other people were supposed to press you to accept it or sort of, you know, push for your candidacy. So the people who did want to be in the cabinet couldn't really say it, at least not outright. Um, And, you know, Washington was trying to select from the sort of cream of the crop if he could, but a lot of those people turned him down. And, you know, like for example, he asked John Marshall to be in his cabinet many times and he said no because Washington was asking him to be the attorney general. And it wasn't until the very end of Adams' administration when he asked Marshall to be the secretary of state. um, And then, of course, he's appointed to the Supreme Court that he says yes. So it also had something to do with what position you were willing to put people in because they did have different ranks and different sort of honor that was associated with them.
0: And I really appreciate how. you know, towards the end, you, you briefly touched on that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, his immediate successors, kind of by and large kept the cabinet in kind of that Washington context. They, they followed through with some of that precedent. They didn't really experiment like Washington did with with different advisory models. And I was wanting to see if, if you could speak to that a little bit and, and why you think that they kind of followed Washington's example.
1: Yeah, this is such, a, such an important point, because if they had done something else, um, then Washington would have just been sort of remembered as a one-off. But it's the repetition, because the cabinet isn't in the Constitution and isn't written into legislation, it's the repetition through custom that makes it actually an institution over time. Um, and so that their adoption of the cabinet is really essential. Now, Adams is a little bit easier to un- understand because he had an absolutely impossible task of following Washington. Um, no one was going to be able to do that well because it's impossible to follow the you know most famous man in the world and, and do a good job. And Adams also presented very differently than Washington did. So I think he was doubly sort of screwed in that way. And so he was trying to provide as much stability and as much continuity as he could, because the country had never experienced a peaceful power transition. And keep in mind, they're primarily used to monarchies, which is the only time you have a transition is when someone dies. And sometimes that transition is accompanied by civil war or murder or intrigue or you know anything you can imagine. And so this was a very stressful moment for the country. And so Adams really wanted to provide stability. So he kept the cabinet. He even kept Washington's secretaries thinking that they would be loyal to him and the office of the presidency, which turned out to be a grave miscalculation because they were actually quite loyal to Hamilton and sought to undermine his reelection campaign and um, his foreign policy agenda. So that didn't work out so well for him, but he actually set a critical precedent by firing a secretary. He fired Timothy Pickering, which confirmed that the secretaries work for the president and the president has the right to remove them then Jefferson is really fascinating because he touts his election as the revolution of 1800. And yet one of the first things he does in office once his secretaries are in their positions is he writes this letter saying that we're going to follow Washington's model, his first term model for the cabinet. And we'll deal with most of our stuff in individual meetings and correspondence. But then if there are big issues, we'll meet together and discuss in this way. Um, And I actually have an article on Jefferson's cabinet that's going to come out in the Journal of the Early Republic at some point. It's been, it's sort of, you know, in line waiting. Um, and, and Adams and Jefferson are actually going to be the subject of my next book because they present such an interesting comparison of one of the worst cabinets in U.S. history and one of the best cabinets in U.S. history. And so I think that that comparison will reveal a lot about how presidents deal with power and ego and ambition at the highest levels of office. And that was certainly something they struggled with. Washington did, too. But he was on such a sort of different plane than everyone else that he, I think, had a little bit of an easier time than some
0: of the people that followed him. Absolutely. And I was actually going to ask kind of where your research was leading you next. And so it's it's great to hear that you've got plans to take on um, the Adams and Jefferson cabinets, because that's been one of the interesting things as I've moved into those presidencies to kind of examine some of the, the differing dynamics and you know in in the adams cabinet you really see an example of a cabinet that doesn't work up and no. chill you know, <laughs> t- towards the end when he's finally able to replace people then it oh, starts yeah, working great. like it should. but then you see jefferson and just how he's able to really make that cabinet work for him and for mm-hmm. his agendas
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of really wonderful books out there about Adams, about Jefferson, some great books that compare the two of them. But for some reason, historians have been fairly slow to pick up the cabinet as a lens through which to study presidencies. And I think that it's just really, it is such an important part of the presidency because they're usually in the smack dab in the middle of all of the action. They can be such an effective tool for outreach and congressional liaison and public policy. Um, but also, I think are a really good measure of presidential leadership because Usually secretaries tend to be filled with ego and you know they have their own ambitions and they're very experienced in their own expertise and they're used to being listened to. So bringing together a group of people that are not wallflowers and trying to manage them is can be a nearly impossible task. And so I'm really excited to continue that research. I started with, with this book, of course, but continue that research and, and see what I find as I look at the both of them together.
0: Absolutely. And I, I can't wait to read it. Um, oh, well, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest, I wish that your book would have come out a few years before whenever I was working on the Washington presidency. But I'm so glad it's out there now, because like you said, they're just really in chill now. There wasn't a book that examined kind of the cabinet in and what it could tell us about the, the presidency. And, and especially like with Washington, the cabinet played such key roles in mm-hmm. various points. Um, just the fact that it's it's taken until now to really get a focus on that, kudos to you for <laughs> figuring well, out you. that there was that gap.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it was, I got very lucky. I mean, and again, there is amazing literature on Hamilton and Washington and Jefferson and their relationships and all that jazz. But um, I got very lucky. I went looking for a book on the cabinet to understand it better, and I couldn't find one and then spent the next several years hoping that no one would beat me to it. And Um, Once I was done with the dissertation, I was pretty convinced that no other historian would do it because I think that I had pretty much established that that was sort of my topic. But I was also kind of concerned that someone who operates in a little bit more of like the journalist um, realm, like John Meacham, would scoop me. Um, Not that he would like scoop me, but that he would beat me to it. Um, And so I just was crossing my fingers and I was like, oh, please, no one get there. And so I was thrilled when I was finally able to get it into readers' hands.
0: Absolutely. Well, and as we're wrapping up, I just want to kind of take us kind of full circle and ask you, because in your acknowledgments, you talked about how you had a goal to, quote, tell the general story. Mm. So what would you say are the key takeaways that we can glean about Washington the individual by studying him through the context and the lens of the cabinet? And how has this process of telling his story changed your understanding of Washington?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, So the thing that I came away from writing this book about Washington was that I really didn't set out to write a leadership story, but it kind of ended up being one anyway. And Washington was deeply flawed. He could be cruel. He could have quite a temper. Um, he could be malicious and cold, but he also had a deep sense of moral conviction. He had a deep sense of duty and obligation to the nation. He had a constant desire to improve and better himself and an awareness of his own flaws and a, and a willingness to seek help to of people that were better than him at things. And so I, I sort of already felt this way, but um, through studying him, if anything, I think that I have a, a better understanding of what he was bad at and where he fell short. And if anything, that increased my sense that he was all the more important to study because looking at a marble bust and figuring out how we could find someone that's perfect is impossible and I think leads to a lot of despair if we think about that sort of leadership in the contemporary moment but if we say you know this is a a flawed person and yet he accomplished all of these extraordinary things what does that tell us about what is actually possible and i think that is a much more helpful it's a much more interesting it's a much more productive use of time and so i would say that was the if anything i came away more convinced that he needed to be understood and studied in a in a real and sort of wholesome and i don't mean wholesome like you know, happy, but wholesome, like complete way. And that that was a really
0: important part of our national story. I couldn't agree more. And I think in the cabinet, you really did accomplish that.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That's such a, that is a wonderful compliment.
0: So thank you so much for your work and um, definitely looking forward to reading your future work. And thank you so much for coming on Presidencies and sharing your research and sharing your insights with the audience.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much again to Lindsay Sharvinsky for coming on Presidencies to discuss her research and her new book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. If you'd like to connect with Lindsay on Twitter, she can be found at l m lmschervensky, that's C-H-E-R-V-I-N-S-K-Y, all one word. You can also learn more about her work, media appearances, and upcoming events on her website, www.lindsaychervensky.com. Not only does she share great material about history online, but you might just catch a few photos of her dog, John Quincy Dog Adams. As for this podcast, you can connect with me through social media on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, and on Instagram at PresidenciesPodcast. That's all one word. Past episodes and more information about the podcast, including how you, yes, you, dear listener, can help support the work here at Presidencies, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-Y dot com. Interviews like this and all of the presidential history material provided by presidencies is supported by listeners like you. And I'd like to do a quick shout out to our newest patrons. Sign up at the Jefferson level of support is Kara, and at the FDR level of support is Michelle. Thanks so much to Michelle and Kara for their commitment to ensuring that this journey through presidential history continues on well into the future. I'd also like to thank all the listeners who recently left reviews on Podchaser as part of their Reviews for Good fundraiser for Meals on Wheels. Thankfully, they were all positive 5-star reviews, and I thought I'd share a few with you before we wrap up. Pontifax podcast wrote, quote, excellently researched show and a very charming host. Thank you so much, Pontifacts. And likewise, if you haven't listened to Pontifacts yet and like podcasts such as Totalis Rancium and Rex Factor, you should check them out as Brie and Fry go through papal history one pope at a time to determine who was the pope beyond compare of all the popes. Alan from the Political History of the United States podcast left the following review. Quote, a fantastic show looking at the history of the presidency. It is well-researched and has a fantastic host. Thanks so much. Alan recently did an opening quote for the latest Jefferson episode, and I highly recommend that you check out his podcast as well. He starts with the European Age of Exploration and weaves together a centuries-long tale full of information about how the political schema of what became the United States came into being. Finally, the Tennish podcast left the following review, quote, A must-listen for anyone interested in American history. Well done. Thanks so much. If you're looking for irreverent and side-splitting humor, then you should check out the 10 podcast, where the hosts, Nick and Brandon, discuss a different top 10 list each week. Thanks so much to everyone who has left a rating or review on either Podchaser or Apple Podcast. Even in the 21st century, word of mouth is still the best way to share information, so I appreciate all of you who have told folks about presidencies or shared posts or links to episodes. I couldn't do this without all of you. If you're in the U.S. and are listening to this on the day it's released, I wanted to do a special Mother's Day shout out to any moms who are listening. Though it's been a decade and a half since I lost my mom, the love that I have for her remains as strong as ever, and her impact can be felt each and every day. Her encouragement of my love of history and my interest in technology led me to this podcast. To all the moms out there, thank you for all that you do. It is not an easy task, and sometimes it may seem thankless but your time and effort not only has a long-term impact on your child, as this project serves as a testament to, it will impact people that you may not ever meet for decades to come. On that note, and until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends.